0: This is episode 183 of the Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, San Diego musician and producer, Jeff Berkley. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this.
1: She wrote a dear John with his... John Deere The cornfield said she's out of here It was short and sweet But it was loud and clear She brought a dear John with his John Deere Well, he promised he wouldn't But he did again Passed out, blacked out, sea.
0: I am thrilled to welcome a new guest to the show today. I've got Jeff Berkeley with me of the band Berkeley Heart from San Diego. Welcome to the show, Jeff.
1: Thank you so much. How are you doing today, Jennifer?
0: I'm just great and looking forward to our conversation and learning more about you. I've spent the last few days stalking you on the internet and your <laughs> website and and listening to your songs on uh, Uh, YouTube, and also really enjoyed the concert that you did on your porch during the pandemic.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
0: I've just really been enjoying your music, so I've been really looking forward to learning some more. So I I don't have a bio for you to read. Are you from San Diego originally?
1: Yeah, I'm the one. I'm the only one. There's, (laughs) There's very few natives. There's three or four of us, and we all know each other. No, I was. I was born in 1970 at Sharp Hospital here in San Diego, and uh, I've been here my whole life, although I did um, spend some time with my dad in, in Los Angeles going back and forth. Like, I'd spend a summer there, here, you know, here and there, and, uh, but most, most of the time was here in San Diego.
0: Wow, yeah. that's really amazing, yes. and do and I,
1: I need to know, do I call you Jen or Jennifer, or which is best with you? Oh,
0: actually, any of those work. My family calls me Jeff, so that would be fine, too. What? Actually, I know, right? So it's not, I don't have a hard time remembering your name. That
1: is amazing. I've never <laughs> heard, what is that? Is that short for? Yeah, it's short for admissions? Jennifer.
0: Yeah, sure. Oh, okay. uh-huh.
1: Wow, that's crazy. I have a cousin who was born at the same time. Uh, just a few days apart from me named Jennifer. And I was oh. Jeff. So that's kind of interesting. I don't no, know why. Oh my
0: gosh. Yeah, really. <laughs> so maybe that was us in another yeah, alternate universe or something.
1: Could be. You never know.
0: Yeah. So tell me how you got started in music.
1: Well, I was sort of born into it, to, hmm. to be to be honest with you. my Both of my parents are very musical. My mom sings and, and was always in the choir and church and all that. And my father who's was a minister? Who was a minister? He's passed away, but um, he was a preacher and a traveling evangelist who actually preached in like big stadiums and stuff, oh. and like smuggled Bibles into China. Just a very fervent believer who could just light up a room with huh. his stories and, and his his teaching and his. He didn't really preach, you know. When when you think of preaching, sometimes you get this feeling like someone's talking at you, you know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. whatever. He was just more of a, he He kind of had the same job as a songwriter, singer songwriter. We're just up there trying to get a point across and relate to people and help them feel better. Maybe by the end of the thing, you know, and really what we're trying to do is help ourselves feel better. And my dad's situation was like that too. And so he was a musician, an amazing trumpet player um, all the way as a young man and became a bass player who ended up, playing with all sorts of people and was in Holly, Hollywood for a while as a young man. And uh, he had music in his blood. It's, it's just in our, it's in our blood. He, he was part of the the early like Calvary Chapel and Vineyard movement, if you know about churches at all, but it was sort of um, this, this new way of having church where they would have sort of grateful dead style, like hour and a half long mm. worship services where people are tripping out and spinning around and speaking in weird languages. And, it was all, it's just how I grew up. It's what I was around. And so I, I, as soon as I could, I was in my dad's church worship band, you know, and I'm playing these Grateful Dead shows, basically. And you learn really easy about what music can do and and what you can do with music. You can wield it like a, a spell or something like that. Mm. You, you feel like a wizard sometimes in those settings where you can affect a whole mass of people at one time with just the way you're playing and it's all coming from your heart and if they can feel that then that's something so I, that's how I learned and also how I kind of sort of found my way into music I had had piano lessons starting in fourth grade thanks to mm-hmm. my mom yeah. and um that luckily piano is a percussion instrument and that led to drums pretty quick but I had this great foundation in actual musical notes rather than just rhythms through drums but I, I was a drummer. start out with that's what that's what made me really want to do it i was that kid with the boxes and using my mom's wooden spoons and stuff and practicing along to like beatles records and seals and croft and my mom had dolly parton records and, Mm. and all sorts of stuff and just discovering you know and so my parents is how i got into music truly
0: yeah there's a youtube video of you playing the drums and i'm like oh Look, he plays the drums. I didn't realize that's where you get Because I think of you, of course, as a guitar player.
1: Well, it's funny to hear people say that to this day, but it's true. There was a time when I made my living just playing percussion, playing oh. a djembe, uh, which is a West African drum, prehistoric drum. And, and you can get all sorts of drum set sounds out of it. And it was sort of my way into learning about songwriting because I was playing djembe which can sound like a bass guitar and a drum set all in one thing Mm -hmm. so i was getting hired by singer songwriters who just wanted somebody to give them some rhythm and make the sound a little bigger and maybe sing a harmony
2: Uh and in
1: san diego at the time nobody knew what djembes were this was pretty early on
2: not Um, sure they do now
1: kind of the well some people you've seen them before trust me they're okay they're, they're really beautiful drums and um they usually they're made with a goat skin and it's kind of a trunk of a tree thing and uh, if you looked it up you'd see it there you probably think of like sort of hippie drum circles
0: yeah it so- sounds like that's what you're playing in the in the video
1: it was but this is okay. before the hippie drum circles started and, and uh, okay. i seriously had the first one of anybody that anybody knew and i was the only guy in san diego doing that and so i got a ton of gigs Mm -hmm. playing with singer songwriters amazing singer songwriters in san diego guys like joel raphael and jack temshan who wrote peaceful easy feeling and uh, steve boltz is a huge staple of the folk scene and gregory page and all these amazing people were having me play with them and i learned by being on stage with those folks about how songwriting worked and sort of watched them and Started playing I was already playing guitar, so I started writing songs and mm-hmm. I was playing percussion with sitting in with guys like Jackson Brown and David Crosby and oh,
2: wow.
1: just amazing Bruce Coburn and the Indigo girls and all these wow. amazing people and it was so much fun and just learning about songwriting at the same time. And I was encouraged by all of them just to to start doing that. But there was one guy that I played that I backed up as a percussionist that would always, every set would say. Hey man, why don't you do some of your songs? And he would hand me his guitar, and he'd go sit in the audience. Wow! And, to, and that was Calman Hark.
2: Oh, <laughs> and I so see.
1: He really was encouraging, and he suggested that I enter a, um, a songwriting contest in Texas called the Kerrville New Folk Emerging Songwriter Contest. But it, it's this thing that Peter Yarrow started for Peter uh-huh. Paul and Mary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's 45 years old now, but some of the winners are like Steve Earle and Joel Raphael uh, that I mentioned and Nancy Griffith and Uh David Wilcox
2: and
1: all these my heroes, you know? And so when I won in 1999, they all knew me as a percussionist. Nobody knew that I wrote songs. And so when I won this contest, people were floored and it was this... This energy, it created an energy. People going, "What the drummer? Who? What? That whole <laughs> that whole little weird thing of in people's brain kind of led to Calman Hart and me going, "Let's start a band."
0: Yeah. I'm like, "Man,
1: I don't let's let's go. I got some songs. You got some songs. Let's harmonize and see if it works." And that's that's where we find ourselves twenty three years later.
0: Yeah, right. So some factoids about that. Yeah. So you two, you and Kelman Hart formed Berkeley Hart 23 years ago, and now you're up to 10 albums, 11 albums,
1: 11 albums and a DVD called Oh, Berkeley, Where Heart Thou?
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love that. Now, your music, so of course, I've gotten to enjoy your music, and I have my own descriptions of it, but it's been described as California country rock with a dash of folk, or somebody else described it as warm and peaceful as a summer evening on the bayou. Oh. Yeah, I I love all of those. I think they're all apt in different ways. Those are great. Yeah, those are great. Can you tell me how you think your music has evolved over that time period?
1: For me personally, musically, it's just been a a growing, an arc of growth. You know, Mm -hmm. I was pretty ahead of the curve. I started really early on in bands and stuff, and I had a pretty good idea of. Of the musical aspect of it, but how to perform, how to be a front man, you know. I was a drummer and mm-hmm. you hide behind this thing, you know, mm-hmm. you're in the back. <laughs> uh-huh. You're not responsible for what's happening in between songs and all that kind of stuff. So for me, that was the arc of it, you know, how how to not piss off an audience within the first couple songs, you know, <laughs> like I didn't learn any of that because I came from being a drummer. I didn't learn, I didn't spend all that time learning folk songs on the guitar. Because I was playing drums, you know, right. I knew how to play guitar, but I learned it to accompany myself in songwriting. So, um, the main thing about the way things have evolved for me is just the growing, the growing part of it. And it was so cool because I had all these guys that were older than me, a little ahead of me, and just knew about songwriting. Kalman is one of those guys that I could just watch. I didn't even have to ask questions. You could just observe and learn so mm-hmm. much, and so. Um, that and learning about recording records <laughs> has been a huge thing for me because I I do a lot of production now and I, I never thought I would be a record producer. And so I, 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 I say that, it sounds funny even saying it, but because what is a producer, you know? But um, people hire me to help them make records. And yeah, how, how, I, did,
0: how did that happen?
1: It, it happened because... Um, the very first Berkeley Heart record, which is called Wreck and So. And it's got a picture of a wrecked car in front of a wheat field on the cover.
0: <laughs> Perfect.
1: Wreck and so. So we, we love wordplay, but um, that record was uh, co produced with uh, a, a young lady named Marty Amato, who's a really talented producer and um, very, very professional and really good at making the most of the time in an expensive studio and knew the ropes, you know? And so she, we went in and did that record and, you know, Calman and I really found our sea legs when we got in there and she gave us the slack to just go for it. Mm. And we had this really amazing young, hot engineer and this really cool studio that was all made all wood on the inside, like being on the inside of a guitar. Oh, neat bunch of a bunch of really groovy old german microphones and um this engineer and the four of us just went in there and those two showed me what good producers and engineers do they help the artists discover what it is they're trying to do you know Mm. and they were able to just ask questions and get me in common thinking and show us the ropes of the studio enough to just get us going Mm -hmm. and so we made this this record that got a lot of accolades and and a lot of awards and so people slowly but surely started to hear it and they would you know wonder how we could get that sound and and even though there were four of us that made the record somehow folks were calling me I think because in in the San Diego music scene I'm just always around and having fun and smiling I'm very easy to call basically. And and so they would call me and I'd tell them, well, we did this thing in the studio and we spent all this money and there were three other people, but they um, were really interested in having me help them out. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I honestly, to this day, I don't understand, except that (laughs) we have a really, really great time in the studio and the records are coming out really good. (laughs) uh, I think that's really all it is and how that started. And that was about 23 years ago. Mm. And since then, I mean, I mean, four or 500 records over that time all in, in, wow. in my home in bigger recording studios and now I have a recording studio on Jason Mraz's property where I run the studio there and we oh. all my gears there and his gears there and another guy named Robbie Robinson and the three of us have partnered up in the studio it's in the middle of an avocado orchard
2: mm-hmm. and
1: I made I got to engineer Jason Mraz's latest record look for oh. the good came out and I have a oh, co-write cool. on that and nice. Um, so things are going really really cool and I'm, I'm doing all sorts of amazing fun projects and uh, I never it's just my life is really fun I'm a very 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 lucky person at this juncture because I, I work in a place that's large enough to socially distance and make really good music and so I'm lucked out right now. I'm just trying to, you know, keep keep it up. But that's what happened: is people just got on to the vibe that we were creating in the studio and wanted to be a part of that. I think.
0: Well, since I have you here, I'm going to ask a couple of questions about music and music producing. I know that I'm springing these on you, but you know, one thing I, I I've always wondered. Well, especially since working on the podcast, I've been thinking a lot about sound. And what people hear, and I'm curious to know if you think that your hearing is different than other people's. Or I I don't know if I've even got a really good question in here. I'm just curious as to what you think. What makes a good music producer?
1: Wow. Well,
0: I know. Sorry.
1: (laughs) No, that's okay. You know, this the answer to this question has probably changed for me over the years. Mm -hmm. I might have, I'm not really sure, you know, there's probably been several answers over the years, but the more I do it, the more I I realize that it's really about, aside from technical audio aspects of the engineering part of it, producing records is about allowing the artist the freedom to do the thing that, that they're feeling in their heart and help them achieve that in all sorts of ways. Some of them know how to do certain things better than others. And so you end up, every production is different because every artist is different. So you end up doing things for one artist that the, another artist never would need you or want you to do. And so it just depends from as far as producing goes, there's a, there's a bedside manner and just a mm. a thing where you just never want to stifle the creativity of someone, but you also want to be able to say, Whoa, I think dipping your head in green paint while you do the vocals, probably not a great idea, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever it is they, you know, yeah. it, it get a little outside of the envelope, but you don't, you don't want to do that in a way that can make somebody feel sad or bad about themselves. And so often that happens. Engineers especially can sometimes be that guy with the lab coat, you know, and a pocket protector, and they forget that they're dealing with, People who are in a very raw state, very I often know. making a record that's the most important thing to in their life to them in that at that moment artistically. Uh-huh. Now that being said, the part of it that that was the biggest learning curve for me. All that other stuff comes a little more naturally, just dealing with people and musicians. Mm-hmm. But the engineering part, I had no clue about. I mean, I Berkeley Heart, we ordered the gear for a studio in my home for our third record and it and it arrived and 45 minutes later I was recording the record just like with with the instruction manual okay oh op- how to open a track where do I plug this in you know and we just started from there and so for me th- that part of it first I would hire engineers like Ben Moore who I went to high school with and is amazing keyboard player and amazing engineer who's done all sorts of great alternative music like Drive Like Jehu and Uh, Switchfoot and Megadeth and all these great Mm -hmm. records he's worked on but he was a huge mentor for me early on including my dad who I went into the studio with he showed me the ropes of the studio to begin with a friend of his named Andy Mangione who was the first guy I knew with a home studio and you just start learning you know Mm -hmm. you start asking questions and being a pest and all as the drummer you're always the first one there And so then you just hang out while everybody's doing their thing and you watch, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like being the catcher on a baseball team. You learn how to be a manager because if you're the backup catcher on a baseball team, you're you're on the bench a lot. See your watch on the manager manage. Uh And so it was like that. And, And, you know, the engineering part, I just lucked out because I had all these great engineer friends who were willing to answer my questions and come in and show me that I had it hooked up wrong and teach me about how to hear how to hear.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm curious about is how to hear.
1: And that's the thing that you're asking is, do I hear differently? Probably, but I don't hear any better or worse. Okay. I just hear in a way uh, that I've trained my ears to listen. And so, you know, next time you're listening to a record, especially those of you who aren't in the music industry, next time you're listening to music, try and pick out one element of the band the guitar player or the bass player or the keyboard player, and just listen to that all the way through that one thing. What is that doing? How's it interacting with the other players? Is there too much of one kind of color? It's, it's very often kind of like looking at a painting, the great masters of painting knew how to balance all the colors correctly. And it's exactly the same. There's only a certain amount of color that you can fit into this palette and what we're listening for is balance. And you're also listening, balance, uh, audio balance. So everything's represented from low to high. And then also dynamically is, is this moving me emotionally, Mm. you know? And so those are the things that I listen for. And I, it's kind of ruined me for listening to records. I can't, I used to be that kid laying on my bed with my headphones on, like with the record cover and, like tripping and listening to music for three hours or
2: something. Uh I
1: I don't do that anymore because I, I'm always listening to music constantly all day and into the evening. And so my bandwidth for hearing is just kind of used up that way sometimes, Mm -hmm. but also when I am listening, I'm like, Whoa, so what did they do there? And you just get real technical and Mm -hmm. it's a whole nother way to listen, but it's not that I can hear better or worse. It's just that I am a trained guy. It's what I do, you know?
0: Yeah, it's it's all fascinating. All right, so I'm going to talk about that um, Facebook Live concert that you had on your porch at the end of last month, and I'll put a link to it. It was so fun, and you guys did such a great job with two sets and the whole thing in the middle during the break <laughs> where where you had the camera on the dog. It's just It's just completely charming. Everything's about it. So great. And then there's this one song that you do, that's called something like Dear John John Deere. Yeah. Something like that. That's uh, it.
1: Yeah.
0: And the, the song is just great. And, and it's it's a funny song, right? It's not a serious song. And and maybe a little many, bit
1: clever, sort of. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's not really all that typical for for the songs that you do, but it is quite catchy. So tell me about that one, how that came about. And did the two of you write it together, or was it typical of how you do
1: songs? It's typical, it was typical of how we write together. We both write a lot together. Okay. In fact, more and more lately we've been able to do that and, and, it's, and it's going really well. But, but we both write separately and with other people. We're just songwriters, so we're just tripping around with the guitars and you, know, you want to write a song? Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, do, we record a lot of those too. But um, in the case of Dear John, John Deere, when I get an idea for a song, and I know that it's a little bit outside of my genre, uh-huh. Very often I'll reach out to someone within that genre to help me do the song and make it authentic, you know? I see. And um, and I usually get a really great lesson. And the one thing I learned about country songs is that Calman Hart, my partner, mm-hmm. is his where he comes from is 60s old school California country. And he's one of the guys that helped me discover it, you know, Graham Parsons and Merle Haggard, and, and the whole legacy of, of music from here, whether it was old school country, or if it turned into cosmic country, you know, in the 60s and 70s, but I, I've fallen in love with it too, this is 25 years ago, and so the two of us are able to kind of work within that style pretty well, and I was sitting in my living room one day, and I'm looking up at it right now, I have a keychain holder, it's green with yellow writing, it says John Deere, it's a John Deere keychain holder, and it's It's like a thing you get, I think I got it in a little gift shop up in the mountains in a little town somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, but uh, we, we use it to hang our keys on. And I saw that and across the room from the front door is a mirror. Like everybody knows you're supposed to have for proper feng shui, you have to have a mirror across from the doorway, right? On the wall opposite the door. So that's what we did. And so the John Deere things next to the door. And as I I looked in the mirror and I caught a reflection of the John Deere keychain holder, even though the letters were backwards, it said, dear John. (laughs) And I was like, Whoa, dear John. That's John Deere, dear John, John Deere. What a great title for a country song. Right. Uh And so I literally grabbed the phone and texted or called Calman (laughs) and said, dude, can you come over? (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah, and so uh-huh. he did he came over and we came up there were all sorts of different scenarios but we ultimately chose the story of the song which is that she's angry because he promised he wouldn't drink anymore and he broke his promise and so she gets angry and she goes outside and she writes a dear john letter in the cornfield with his own with his tractor
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and so that's the song she wrote a dear john with his with his john Deere. oh yeah
0: that's how it goes Uh yeah
1: and so that's the song and now we're trying to put a video together we put out the word Mm. there's people all over the country with cornfields who are trying to help us write (laughs) she ultimately writes f-u in the
0: oh yeah that's right Uh and
1: so we're trying to find um, someone who will allow us to plow after they they harvest the corn If they'll let us plow under a certain amount, so it says "fu" and we can get a drone shot. So if you're out there listening and you have a cornfield, please help us say (laughs) "fu." Yeah,
0: excellent. Now, now is that the song where you play some harmonics?
1: Oh God, maybe every song, every time, every time we plays different. No, there's not a lot of.
0: Oh okay.
1: I mean, we're 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 not jamming. But we do do a a bit of improvisation and and I get, if I'm feeling it, sometimes I'll, I'll do some kind of ding, 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 ding stuff. But yeah, we do. I have a lot of harmonics on, on, on songs.
0: Yeah. I, it might've been that one. I was really struck because we don't, we don't always see that. And it was surprising, but also just completely charming when that happened so i was really intrigued but i love harmonics i think they are actually kind of underused they're just a really fascinating sound to me oh i'm
1: glad uh, that's so cool yeah that, it's a fun part of what guitarists can do for sure are mm-hmm. you or in harmonies
0: uh, No, i meant harmonics the ding ding mm-hmm. yeah okay great
1: mm-hmm. yeah no that is one of my favorite i, I use it a lot especially When we're just jamming in between songs or something, I'll kind of do some stuff. So who knows Uh what you heard.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. No, I thought it worked really well. That's surprising, but I thought it worked really well. Oh, good. So, yeah, can you talk a little bit about your history as a guitarist and um, what, what you're working on now, if anything?
1: So slowly but surely, I would, because in Berkeley Heart, we decided that we were going to just do guitars instead of. At first, I was playing percussion when we first started in 1999. It was just a couple years and 9 11 happened. Mm. And it became exceedingly difficult for me to travel with three or four different instruments, which is what it took to play percussion and a couple of guitars and different tunings so that the audience that I would sit there and listen to us tune in between each song and stuff. And Kalman's harmonicas and our luggage and our merch and all that and his guitars, it was, you remember, they were cracking down on the amount of bags. And so right. that kind of killed percussion because
2: oh. we were
1: only using it for three or four tunes of the set the rest of the time I was playing guitar. And it just became this thing where we couldn't travel with it. And so that was that. And I started playing guitar a lot more at that point and learning how to be a lead guitar player.
2: Mm-hmm, <laughs>
1: and mm-hmm. I was also in this... Tuning, I like to use this alternate tuning that's called Dad Gad. And it's just an old folk tuning, I think, from Ireland. It's beautiful. And when he, when Kalman plays in a standard tuning and I play in an alternate tuning, we can get voicings that are really big, large chords like a piano would play.
2: Ah.
1: And so it gives us this sound that people attribute to us. It's not we're just using different tunings, but we've worked it and it's become kind of a thing that we do and people notice it when we play and I'm usually playing lead in that alternate tuning too. So I've developed this way of playing lead in this tuning that gives all these great voicings and stuff that um, you don't often hear with lead guitar players. So it kind of set me aside and people started to notice and I got, had a couple articles written about me that were, they're calling me, they're putting me in these categories of great guitar players that are just, it's just embarrassing because I'm a drummer in my mind. I'm like a 17 year old drummer. Right. And so thinking of me as some kind of great lead guitar player was just hilarious. and still is to this day, but the truth is I very rarely do any percussion gigs anymore. It's almost all guitar. If I'm backing somebody up, I tour in a couple bands as the lead guitar player
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I play electric and acoustic and I record guitar on most of the records that I make. And um, I have no idea what happened. I just <laughs> like, to play. so it's right. been like having a second, you know, just, it's really different than being the drummer. And it's playing hand percussion in a band when you're using just your hands to hit the drum and you're playing in clubs and stuff, it starts to wear on your body. I was hanging this 35 pound drum on my body
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: then hitting it as hard as I can Mm -hmm. and traveling from town to town doing that. Yeah. So it was not easy. And it's to this day, it's caused some issues, you know, just, some you know everybody gets physical issues from working any kind mm-hmm. of job and that's what happened and so it was a relief i didn't plan it but i think my body was kind of like no no play the guitar more play the guitar mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. and uh and it worked out because now i get to travel around with guitars which are a whole nother thing because you're like the, in this weird position but right um i'm not complaining it's such a great job I, i'll take a little bit of discomfort every once in a while at the end of a gig just for that Becoming a guitar player was uh, a surprise, but something I'm really enjoying.
0: Yeah, sounds like yeah. it. No, that, that's really great. So I imagine your personal lives have changed hugely also during the last 20 years. And so how do you keep a partnership like yours vibrant? And do you have advice for people who are concerned about not going the way of the Beatles?
1: I don't have, the problem is that any success that Kalman and me have at keeping a band together
2: Mm -hmm.
1: has been because our personalities accidentally go really, really well together.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: I am admittedly the intense one who over worries about everything and, Mm. and, and is like focused on all the little tiny minutia of the whole process. And Kalman is Happy go lucky and relaxed, and nothing bothers him, and the, everything just rolls right off him. And that's why, because we just accidentally get along. And I'm saying that, you know, we, we both work really hard at it, but it's all within our nature as people. Mm-hmm. So trying to tell somebody like why, why, how does a band stay together? I think after a while, either you you hit a wall of all the all the little annoying things that everybody's been annoyed about with each other Mm -hmm. or you just decide to ignore that and move forward and make it all part of the charming part of who you are Mm -hmm. uh or not and there's a there's a turning point in every band some some of them don't make it through that and some bands that have been together forever have several turning points just like any relationship but uh i think we both work really hard at it, and our our nature as people just it happens to go together and work out. And thank goodness, you know, because we we have a great time when we play, and our sense of humor go together, and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So thank goodness.
0: Uh-huh. Now, it, and it comes across to the audience. Oh, I'm going to talk about humor in a minute. Um, but I wanted to read you this, this thing that came from slam magazine about your first album, Wreck and so. Oh, okay. And they said, sometimes an album surfaces that is so emotionally and musically authentic that it crumbles resistance to its genre. (laughs) Yeah. And so I thought, okay, that's kind of a funny backhanded compliment there. So that must've been in 2000. I
1: think it was right after Wreck and so came out and, uh, it was really cool. Actually, I, I I really appreciated that. That article, there was one other I remember written by a guy named Buddy Blue mm. here in town who was with the Beat Farmers, if you remember them.
2: Uh-huh.
1: The but he became a, a writer here in San Diego. And both of those articles had this idea of the writers were coming to it from this thing of, man, I was really ready to hate this record.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. right. I
1: hate folk music and I hate this person and that person. And if I see one more banjo, I'm going to flip out. And that's where they come from. And then like they say, that was the whole article was almost that. And then the last paragraph or two, it starts with, however,
0: uh-huh. <laughs> right.
1: this record doesn't do any of that stuff to you. It's authentic and real and it's a new way of doing folk music and shouldn't even kind of be called folk music, which we agreed to all of those things. However in secret, we, we both love folk and that's where we, that's the the kind of houses we play and, and, uh, and venues and stuff. And, and so that's the world we're in, but folk became the F word of music for some reason for a while. And, and it really did become this thing where you had to decide whether or not to tell people you were a folk singer because they would just think a certain thing. And after a while we were like, screw it. We play folk music. And so we're just going to say it, but yeah, that was what those articles were about. And it was, I thought it was a great way to get lots of people who might not have even read the article or listen to the record to go, Oh, maybe I should give it a try. Since it's, kind of a new vibe and it's not, you know, the Kingston trio or whatever the thing. That or they that had you're imagining,
0: right. That you had in your head. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: I mean, do you have any, do you have any ideas about What pulls us back to acoustic music, even when we think we're sick of it?
1: Isn't that weird, right? Yeah, I don't know for sure. I uh, I think there's an there's an organic feeling, something real and authentic about a song played on an acoustic guitar. You know, even though it's it's being mic'd and and reproduced on record, it's still you can feel the box of the wooden box, like a piano. You can feel that thing reverberating, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think somehow there's some frequency response that our bodies respond to that we don't even know we're responding to, you know? Mm -hmm. I think acoustic music has that sort of visceral thing. And it's amazing, you know, that we're talking about folk music. When Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly and Lucy Liu and all those people early on in, in the American folk scene, and even Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk and all these, when that music happened, man, that was punk rock at the time. It right. caused all sort. It was like when the Sex Pistols hit. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think somehow got away from the Kingston Trio and even maybe James Taylor. Mm-hmm. Those things got roped into what folk music is. And that's cool. And I love James Taylor. Mm-hmm. But when you listen to someone like Steve Earle or Justin Earle, those guys have that punk rock still in their music.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's
1: what I really gravitate towards. That's the thing that pulled me into to folk music, was hearing Woody, you know, singing at the top of his lungs and come gather around and let me tell you, what's going on you know what I'm saying and he mm-hmm. he was trying to make change and social justice and and open people's eyes and and connect with people around him who were in the same boat he was in and trying to write songs for them you know and that's what punk rock did too and that's what that's what folk music can do and
0: yeah there's some things sometimes it feels really timely right it feels like now
1: right it's just visceral somehow it gets right in there to, at you you, you can't you know when there's just one or two guitars and a couple of voices mm-hmm. even a banjo or a mandolin or you know there's this sound of this machine in a room moving air
2: uh-huh.
1: and electric instruments aren't like that you know they're they're a different thing it's canned in a way and even though it's canned in a really good way uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> but, sure. um, it's not the same it's not the same envelope the the, the volume of it is louder. So the way it sounds in a room is different, you know. So when when you've got an acoustic player, that person playing music in a in a good sounding room and all of a sudden it's like you're standing there, you know, with them. And and that's that's the thing about Acoustic music, I guess, that is different and why it keeps coming back around in some form, you know
0: Yeah, so humor plays a big part in your music Not just in the songs, but also when you guys are live on stage and I personally just really dug it But do you think there are some times or can you think of an occasion when it didn't work to your advantage?
1: Oh god (laughs) Yes (laughs) Yes The only way you ever get any good at being funny in front of people is to try. Ah. And what what I've found is that Kalman is a great joke teller. So like jokes that we hear and we remember, you know, like. Uh,
0: What's the one about has, the pancake? He had one about the pancake. <laughs> yeah, you're
1: not eating right. All those. They're great. <laughs> and they're not funny. They're not always funny when I try and tell him because he has this deadpan yeah. delivery. Uh-huh. but I I spent all these years in high school and, and a couple of years in college doing improv.
2: Oh, really?
1: And, and Yeah. And so uh-huh. I learned how to just be funny if uh-huh. I could, you know, and just also I have a smart mouth, so I also learned how to be funny to keep from getting beat up and stuff. So mm. I just learned um, how to be funny off the cuff over the years, and it comes to me naturally. So if I'm telling jokes, then then the audience isn't laughing if Kalman's telling jokes and I'm just being funny off the cuff, that's when it works the best. And, huh. and it's two different styles of humor and it's really natural. And when we're just talking and feeding off each other is when it's the funniest, you know, mm-hmm. but that's been the hardest part of the COVID this, of the live stream is when there's no live audience, Yeah, you need that, you know, it's, it's, you need to be able to hear them respond. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're being stupid or not, <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel like we have a few more stupid moments on the live stream than we might have in in person. But I remember a couple times when we realized early on, when we weren't, we weren't traveling yet, but we were playing a couple times a week around town Mm -hmm. a lot. Mm
2: -hmm. And we
1: were, we were also getting hired to be, and we still do to be opening acts on bigger stages for larger, you know, big acts because we're just two guys. Mm -hmm. We can come in and not take up too much space and we can, we can really perform and entertain the audience, which is what they want the opener to do mm-hmm. is to get, let the audience drink a little while and have a good time and be ready for the. And so we, we learned how to do that. And we got, we've gotten to open for some amazing people, but we learned that, you know, by trial and error, you learn how to perform. And so there were lots of times when we just blew it. And um, there was, do you remember this? <laughs> do you remember those, Billy bass things that were like a bat, a fake bass fit on a black and it would A sing.
0: Singing fish. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. So I will admit that when we first, the first 10 years of Berkeley heart, we drank whiskey a lot uh-huh. and we, um, and we would have, it was on our rider, which is the thing where you tell them what you want backstage. Uh-huh. And we would, all we had on our rider was whiskey water and towels. That's it. And so we would be drunk.
2: <laughs> and,
1: and We, we You know, we had these dumb ideas, and one of the ideas was to take one of those Billy Bass things and have it set up on stage and hit the button on it and jam along with it. Okay. And put a microphone on it. And we thought the audience would just think that was the the funniest (laughs) thing, and we did it. And people were seriously, literally silent. Oh, no. <laughs> no laughter at all. <laughs> and so, like, we did that one night. We might have even tried it a second night, knowing <laughs> it was never gonna work. So, that's one of the times you're just trying out stuff. And we uh-huh. did a thing called Berkeley Heart Bingo one night,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: we put all of our song names on a bingo card. Okay. And then as you do them, you mark them off on your card. Uh-huh. And then, you know, as soon as someone's got Berkeley Heart, bingo, they would jump up and say, bingo! Well, we didn't realize they would do that in the middle of the song. As soon oh. as they realized the song was called. And so <laughs> that backfired on us. We tried a lot of, just a lot of kind of dumb and exciting. They were exciting for us. Oh, Berkeley, Where Heart Thou is one of those things that came out of that where we decided, let's do a show that has we're backed up by, a, by a, a really great old-timey bluegrass band called the Seventh Day Buskers. Oh. And we have one microphone on stage that we're all around, and we do all the songs from A Brother Where Art Thou, plus we have guests and us do our own songs that fit within that genre and have the bluegrass band back everybody up on that.
2: Oh, so wow. it's like this
1: variety show mm. and we've done that now like six or seven times. And when we do them now, it's like a thousand people that show up for this thing yeah. and it's in a big theater um, in in North County and Oh Berkeley where heart has become this every year and a half or two years, kind of big thing that happens. And so cool little things like that have, you know, either they work out or they don't.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to check out that show. That sounds really great. Yeah. So one of the things about country music or or folk music is that they're willing, is that songwriters are willing to talk about things like alcoholism, cancer, domestic violence. Um, I'm changing gears on you in case you hadn't noticed. And you guys have a song about a family dog who doesn't get a whole lot of attention. And then that song, She's So Beautiful, which is about times when someone's girlfriend is still beautiful even when she's not.
1: Even when she's not, yeah.
0: Even when she's not, so how freeing is that for you as a songwriter?
1: Well, we have complete freedom to write about anything we want, as long as it's not something that is going to turn people off somehow. You know. Okay. Luckily, we don't we don't come up with with ideas that would do that. Generally, our ideas are all within the realm of of acceptance. So that's really all you're trying to do. All we're you know, just coming up with a cool idea for a song, whether it's because of a personal thing Mm -hmm. or, you know, my name is Sam. It's you, you latched on to the dog in that Mm -hmm. song, but there's four characters in that song. Mm -hmm. And the first one is the dog who looks forward to his master coming home every all day. And when, and when his master comes home, that's the most important moment in that dog's life. And he just loves that moment when it's he says hello and he gets a pet and a hug and some food. And, and then, you know, it goes on to the other characters who are all both in need of someone in their life who gives them that thing that they look forward to every day. Or they are that. And they're both of those things. They are that for someone and they need that from someone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then it all comes back around at the end. And the dog is the most important thing to this senior citizen man who's has dementia and only recognizes the dog.
2: Uh-huh.
1: It's this beautiful s- cyclical circle. And it's so amazing it, it, in the folk genre or whatever the genre is we're in, in, the songwriting thing, we can write a song that sounds or feels any way we want. I write funk songs on my solo record. There's some new Orleansy kind of sound and stuff mm-hmm. and, Uh, We lean into the Cajun world a little bit and we lean into um, different, you know, Irish folk music and and, and Northern English kind of stuff in a way and all sorts of Southern kind of, you know, country, country old-timey music. And it it is really freeing, but I don't think about it all that much. We just don't, we don't have anybody. It's a blessing and a curse. Folk music is not a big enough thing For a a big record label to put out, it's it's a smaller section of society, and it's generally a a grassroots kind of outreach thing, and and people don't want to see folk music marketed like you know Rihanna. Yeah, they don't want to see folk music marketed that way. They want to hear about it from a friend or have it be on the download, like punk was in a way. You know, hey, you're so cool because you know who Steve Earle is or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I think that's one thing that's been great for Berkeley heart is that people always want to turn on their friends to us, which is, which is awesome, but we are never going to find a label that can sink a bunch of money into it or anything like that. So it, it also allows us to be completely free in whatever we want to do. No one's giving us a bunch of money to put our records out. So we get to be, we get to decide what's on it and what the songs are going to say and do and how they're going to feel and who's going to play on it and what the record cover is going to look like. And, how many to press and, you know, how many to put out and all that stuff. So we have absolute, complete, total freedom and it's wonderful.
0: Yeah. It really seems like you're in a great sweet spot. Really.
1: We're lucky for sure.
0: All right. My podcast is about work and working and I've had several musicians on and, and band members on. And I started thinking about being a professional musician. as really like the ultimate entrepreneur, right? That, Really, just figuring things out. It must be a big challenge. Do you have any advice for people who are hoping to become professional musicians?
1: Well, the whole thing has changed so much since I started. Oh, really? There was a little bit of money to be made in coffee houses. I was playing as a percussionist. Starting out, I was backing people up. So I was playing five, six, seven nights a week. Mm -hmm. making 40, 50 bucks each time I play, but that would add up over the month and I'd be able to barely scrape by, you know, with a rented room kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the way you got to start out is with your overhead really, really low Mm -hmm. because the money is not always there. And and music has been devalued in our culture uh, over the years so that you can't really make a lot selling your records anymore. You can get the music out there, a lot easier with the internet, but it's also created a, a tough market. You know, when people can get the music for free,
0: for
1: free, you have to find other ways to make a living. I wear lots of hats in the business and play live a lot. But uh, you know, advice. There's an old joke. It's a folk joke. If you know how to make a million dollars in music, you start out with two million. Is how you do it.
0: Oh, <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> right. And it, it, there is a little bit of truth to that. Over the years, I've had a lot of help from family um, and stuff, but now I'm doing it on my own, and I it just took a lot of time. Yeah, and you have to get good at it. and You have to get good at, at knowing how to generate money. You know, I do uh, I do my own solo live stream now every Thursday, which is today. Oh, oh. it's at six p.m. right there on my Facebook site every Thursday. Oh, cool. And uh, I've got. A green screen setup and a smoke machine and I have a, a it's totally different uh well not totally different it's different than the Berkeley Heart one okay but the, that I, I do every Thursday at six and then Berkeley Heart does ours on the last Sunday of every month mm-hmm. at 4 p.m and those are one way I'm able to generate some money but I I make most of my money traveling and playing music live and then also producing other folks records And engineering other folks' records and um, playing on them and and, and doing studio stuff. So I really lucked out, and I've been at it long enough to where I've pretty much saturated this market that I'm in in the area. People know who I am, and Mm -hmm. I'm lucky to have people writing about me and stuff. But that's taken since I started. Um, So it's, it's 2020, and my very first gig, live gig, like professional live gig, was in 1983. Oh. So you do the math. That's how long it's taken. And I I wasn't really making a living on my own, able to do it on my own until about 10, 12 years ago. Okay. So, you know, luckily I had uh, partners who were, who, who were able to kind of pick up the slack and family has helped me out over the years. It just, it kind of works out that way. And the road that I've traveled has been paved with other people's kindness and generosity in it and that's the way art has always existed mm-hmm. in our culture with uh, with people lending a hand in one way or another and anybody any artist who tells you that it isn't that way for them is lying mm-hmm. even the ones that are huge stars at some point along the way they needed some help and so if you know artists they're hurting right now it's mm-hmm. time to reach out you know if you've got an extra six million seven million dollars just send it over get as close as you can <laughs> Get as close as you can.
0: Well, thank you so much for the work that you do. I really appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the show. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners? Anything you'd like to direct them to or really anything you'd like for them to know?
1: Well, thanks. First of all, Berkeley Heart is on Spotify and all our music's up there. So if you do Spotify, you can find that. You can go to jeffberkeley.com. And that has everything that I'm involved with on it Okay. and talks about me as a producer. It talks about Berkeley heart. It has my solo record. It has all of that stuff on there. You can find me on Facebook. Jeffrey Allen Berkeley is my personal Facebook thing, but you can also find me under Jeff Berkeley, an artist. That's B E R K L E Y. Oh, every Thursday at 6 PM, I'm here hanging out playing music and just for an hour and having a nice afternoon. And then the last Sunday of every month, we're doing uh, our live stream. And if you want to talk about making a good quality, amazing world-class record, then uh, hit me up at jeffberkeley.com or find me on Facebook and we can hang out.
0: All right. Thank you so much and good luck to you.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Jeff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Here's John. Here's John.
2: Simple, so he'd understand. She's too big. Let us both one small man. She started it out with a big old.
1: so we' started out with a big old't
2: john
0: thanks for listening everybody well the pandemic isn't really over but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes, airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care, and let's talk again soon.